welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, Chase, we are on to episode six. We are into Acts chapter eight, and uh, we've almost had the end of the Jesus movement. Here at the uh, end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, things have really reached a boiling point in Jerusalem, and it looks like things could be over. Yeah, things were pretty scary there toward the end of chapter 7 with the stoning of the servant Stephen. Um, Stephen Rouse's namesake, actually. And um, it is a sad chapter, but at the same time, um, it is a hopeful chapter. We see the way that Jesus takes care of Stephen, and even in these final hours. And so there, there are there is some comfort there, seeing that as well. But we kind of started in on chapter eight uh, last week, but we'll kind of rephrase and, and reread verses one through four as we get started uh, for this podcast today. So, we're so next chapter um, eight, or yep, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead and read verses one through four, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So again, kind of a surprising chapter break here. Um, This is right in the middle of Stephen's execution, and it records that Saul was in full approval of this. But Saul doesn't want to just stop with Stephen. Um, They dragged Stephen outside of the city and stoned him. But this kicks off a great persecution against all of the church in Jerusalem. As just a side note, this is a helpful example of where the word church is used. It's not talking about any kind of building. They weren't persecuting church buildings. (laughs) They were persecuting Christians. Christians are the church. The word church is just a a collective noun. It's the the word assembly. Um, And so he's persecuting the assembly of Jesus in Jerusalem. And they're scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And this is just notable because many times when a a group is separated from its leadership, it fails. Right. And that's not the case here. The apostles and prophets have been equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And they are going to go everywhere preaching the word because they're not reliant on the apostles, um, of course, the apostles are wonderful, do a lot of excellent work. They're the foundation, like it talks about in Ephesians 2. But the Christians are the ones telling people about Jesus wherever they go. Yeah, no, um, I think that this is a, an encouraging thing. Um, the place in Jerusalem, that was, that was negotiable. You know, that, that wasn't anything that they were rooted in or anything that they felt obligated to stay in. But preaching the word that was non-negotiable, you know, that was something that they had to be doing everywhere that they went. Um, And so it's just so encouraging to see that these people's faith was really in Jesus and the apostles. um, 
did a really good job at grounding these people in the faith of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's what we want for ourselves, but that's also what we want for our church with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to be rooted in Jesus, not in any man or, uh, or in, any, in anybody. That's right. And I mean, it's just amazing. It's hard to imagine how hard this would have been for the Christians in Jerusalem that they've lost one of their, one of their best guys who's been doing a lot of amazing work in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But to top it off, now they're going house to house. I mean, it says in verse three, uh, Saul is entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison that you're living in fear. Like any moment you get a knock at your door and like you're gone or your spouse is gone or your parents are gone, your kids, but whatever, like, it's just a terrifying time in Jerusalem. And so understandably, a lot of people flee. I don't think that was wrong of them to flee the persecution as long as they're spreading the word. <laughs> um, and that's what's amazing to me is we've talked already about Acts you know, 3 and 4, where they're threatened, Acts 5, where they're beaten, and now Acts 7, Acts 8, where Stephen is killed, people are being taken to prison. And it would have been so easy for them to say, okay, guys, like, we got to go underground. We've got to, you know, stop spreading the word so openly. We've got to just pull back. And they just don't. Um, they go everywhere spreading the word. And I, I think about this because God and Satan are at work all throughout this in ways that we don't always see. But I'm sure that Satan intended this attack against Stephen and against the church to stop the movement, to stop the spread of the gospel. And it has the opposite effect. They go everywhere preaching the word. And it's just like, uh, you know, spreading seed, like a dandelion or whatever, you know, like you blow on it, you, the, the seeds pop off and they go everywhere. So you've just uh, spread the movement instead of confining it. And that's a great example for us. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how God works even in moments like this? Well, that, that kind of brings us to this next story. Uh, this biblical text here is going to follow Philip. Um, and I'll just kind of go ahead and say Philip is somebody that we had already seen a little bit of back in chapter six when they were choosing those seven men to take care of the widows. Um, it first states that there was Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. But then Acts six, verse uh, six or five says that there was a man named Philip, who was also one of those seven men. So very interesting. Um, so it kind of followed Stephen and now it's going to follow Philip. So we'll read a little bit about him now. All right, so picking up in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, and we'll read down through verse 13. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For the unclean spirits, or for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
So Philip right. goes uh, down to Samaria, and uh, again, it's he's going north, but since Jerusalem is up in elevation, the idea is going down to Samaria, and he proclaims Jesus to him, and uh, Philip has a lot of good reception. You might expect going to Samaria. Philip is a Jew. This did not go well. This this is going to begin kind of a series of unexpected converts in the book of Acts. I think it's a really interesting thing in this section. Yeah, it is really cool. And we didn't go through Matthew, Luke, and John. We went through the Gospel of Mark. But specifically in John and Luke's account, they spend some time talking about even some of the encounters that Jesus would have with Samaritans. Um, And there was an encounter in John 4 that really showcased some of the tension between the Jew and and the Samaritans quite well. And it likely would have been the case for Simon or sorry, for, uh, for Philip as he goes down and meets these different Samaritans. Um, but, but one of which that he meets is a guy named Simon. Now, this is not Simon and Peter. There are like, like there are eight, a lot I, of Simons. Simons. <laughs> so uh, kind of like the name David or, you know, whatever now. Um, but there are, there are several Simons in the Bible. But this one was a man that we're told was practicing magic in the city. And he's impressing the people with Whatever it is that he's able to do, I, I personally don't believe that this is like magic, magic, like like what you see in Harry Potter or something. I, I think this is more <laughs> the type of magic that we see. If if we if Stephen and I were to go to a magic show, neither one of us would be like, oh wow, what kind of magic is this? We, we'd understand it's illusion, it's being tricked, it's doing mind stuff, whatnot. And uh, I, I would imagine it's a similar thing here, but the difference is. This guy is claiming to be someone great uh, as he's doing it. And people from smallest to greatest are giving him attention and saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And so with what, what he's able to do, it's being attributed as if he's God and he has the power of God as he does these things, as he's doing these magic arts. Yeah. And what's interesting is the crowds have been paying attention to Philip but they've also been paying a lot of attention to this Simon. It says that in verse six and says it again in verse 11. And Simon's had this gig for a long time and it's really kind of blasphemous what he's doing Yes. because however he's deceiving them, they're saying that he's the power of God and he likes that. Uh, He likes the attention. But what's amazing to me is as Philip is preaching the good news about the kingdom, uh, they're believing Philip and they're believing the name of Jesus, and they're all being baptized, men and women, and Simon himself. You'd think that, I mean, one of the last guys to be converted would be this guy who's falsely invoking the power of God, Mm -hmm. and um, he believes, and he's baptized, and he continues with Philip, and he is seeing signs and miracles, and Simon is amazed. And that, again, tells us there's tricks and illusions and there's true miracles and Simon I'm sure I mean this is his gig he knows a lot of the tricks in the book and he's like this is the real deal like he he sees Philip doing real miracles from the Lord and he is convinced and persuaded that this is the real message from God and that's what turns him around Um, so this is a powerful section to see how uh, even someone who's been kind of faking miracles if you will um, is turned around by, by true miracles. 
And, and by his example, I wonder how many people were willing to stop and, and listen to Philip, uh, even if the guy that they're kind of following and are amazed at, if he's amazed by the power that Philip has, the true power of God, think about the type of influence Simon would have had on so many others there in Samaria. Um, but this, this story is, is a little bit short-lived, isn't it, uh, Stephen, with, with Simon and his obedience? Yeah. Well, it's funny. We actually don't know how long. The way Luke writes, this could have gone on for a while, but uh, in That's the text, at least, it, it gets straight to uh, some, uh, some challenging times in Simon's life. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that brings us to verses 14 through 25. So I'll go ahead and read that for us. It says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have no part or portion in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So when they had uh, solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Simon here, um, <laughs> he sees Peter and John, which is really cool. Verse 14 tells us that they send for the apostles there and Peter and John come down. Um, what, what's cool about them getting there is specifically the fact that John had been there before, right, Stephen? And what was his what was his last encounter with the Samaritans, or one of his encounters with the Samaritans? Yeah, I don't know if it was the same city specifically, but in Luke nine, again, Luke and Acts are both written by Luke, but um, Luke has recorded for us John, and of course this is Jesus and all of the disciples, but in Luke nine fifty one, uh, verse fifty two. Uh, he sent messengers ahead of him who went entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And this is Luke nine fifty four. When his disciples, James and John heard it or saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. So I'm not sure which Samaritan village this was, but when the Samaritans reject Jesus, James and John are ready to nuke them. <laughs> like they're ready to call down uh, fire from heaven. And Jesus, of course, says no. He rebukes them for that. And we've seen a real change in John. Uh, this may be one of the reasons that Jesus nicknamed James and John the Sons of Thunder. Yeah, we, we, we talked about them. that in Mark 3. Yeah. And so I just think it's really cool to see John back in Samaria now and he's not looking to barbecue everybody. He's, he's looking <laughs> to convert them and, and give the Holy spirit. Um, right. So they come, they pray that they might receive the Holy spirit. 
And I just want us to note here that in verse 16, like th there is a, a distinction here uh, between like the Holy Spirit falling on someone in this particular way and what happens at baptism. Back in right. Acts chapter two, we talked about the promise for those who repent and are immersed in water in the name of Jesus Christ, baptized, that they are receiving forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Like that's a problem. That's a promise to everyone who believes, repents, is baptized, confessing Jesus as their Lord. And here, these are baptized believers. These are Christians. These are people who have received God's spirit in one sense, but have not received some other manifestations of the spirit. It's important to note in the book of Acts and really in the New Testament, there's different ways that the Holy Spirit is manifested to people. And a lot of times we kind of boil down manifestations of the Holy Spirit to like just specific miraculous things when it's a lot broader than that and a lot deeper than that. And so Peter and John are laying their hands on people. We'll see that in just a second. Um, and they're receiving the ability to do miracles through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So this is a specific manifestation of the Spirit that is, is different from what happens to every baptized believer in other places in the book. So I, I just think that's helpful to, to note that here. Yes, no, that is super helpful. Um, it, I've sometimes heard it distinguished, like you've got the gift of the Holy Spirit, the initial getting the Holy Spirit at baptism, and then there are the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit, things like speaking in tongues, being able to prophesy, stuff like that that we'll read about, like in 1 Corinthians. So um, that, that's sometimes helpful. But it is the apostles who are doing this. I mean, that's important to note. It, it's not just anybody can go and lay their hands on somebody and give them the gift. It seems to be that when the apostles would lay their hands on somebody to give them these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, those people then couldn't go and do the same. It kind of stopped there, um, is my understanding. So this is a helpful text to see that in. Simon doesn't realize that, however, and no, he does wants not. to know, hey, <laughs> I've got some gold. Can you give me, or technically silver, I guess, um, can you give me the ability to pass on the Holy Spirit. And this is just a fascinating example of conversion. I do believe that Simon has truly become a Christian and he's repented of his sins, namely his pride and blasphemous uh, deceiving of people. But his old man is still rearing up. And I think it's his desire to kind of do what he used to do, except for real this time. <laughs> um, he, he wants the power of the spirit. It looks to me like to, uh, to be able to call attention to himself again. And uh, so he offers them money saying, Hey, give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy spirit. And Peter, man, he does not go easy on him. Uh, your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. I mean, wow, this is uh, just so clear that like there, there is not a correlation between what you give and what you get <laughs> with God. Like you can't buy spiritual powers. And uh, he says, you got nothing to do with this. You have no part in this. Your heart is not right before God. And so it's interesting. Again, Simon is a baptized believer he doesn't need to go and be baptized again. Cause it's not like when we baptize, when we were baptized and we begin to follow Jesus that like we never sin again, 
But this is a really clear example of here's a Christian who fell back into his old ways and fell back into a sin, the kind of which he used to participate in, this pride. And in verse 22, he's told to do two things. You need to repent again, basically, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Um, it's not that we're ba- we need to be baptized every time we repent, but when we see sin come back up in our life, we need to repent of that sin, which is making the decision that moment to turn away from that sin. And then we need to pray to God for forgiveness. And we see in other places like first John one, that when we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I believe that happens here. It is interesting that Simon also requests prayer from Peter, mm-hmm. but this is a great example of the ongoing process of repentance in the Christian life. Yeah. Amen. Um, another note on the spiritual gifts thing. I also just think it's noteworthy that there was a specific purpose for the gifts. Like this isn't just a party trick that the apostles are just handing off to somebody, you know, the, no, there was a specific purpose for it. And if they were going to give someone that gift, they were making sure that that person understood what those things were for. They were to confirm messages from God. And I, I think this is one of those areas where you see Peter being very serious about, you know, you don't understand what these gifts are for and your heart's not in the right place. Um, so you need to, you need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. Um, Stephen made the point. Well, it's not that he needs to be baptized again. He just, he needs to ask for forgiveness. And he seems to do that. He, he seems to be contrite and uh, ask for Peter to pray for him. So um, this, this is a wonderful example for us. So in verse 25, um, Peter and John, I believe is who it's talking about there. They, they solemnly testify, speak the word of the Lord, and they start back to Jerusalem but I love this. They didn't just hop in the chariot and head straight back. It says they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You know, they, they were spending time. And, you know, that's exactly what you would see Jesus doing. Um, I think about when we were reading in Mark 6 when he was in Nazareth and his family didn't believe in him and his own kinsmen wouldn't believe him. It says he was going around to the other villages as well in Mark 6 and verse 6. So I think this is certainly kind of a Jesus moment you see where they're just stopping in everywhere that they can uh, to talk to people about the Christ. That's right. And again, it's just amazing to see how good of a reception the gospel is having in Samaria. We talked earlier about the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, but the gospel is breaking down barriers. And there's two big barriers that have been brought up in the gospels. One is the barrier with the Samaritans and the other is the barrier with the Gentiles. And so here in Acts 8, we're really seeing that barrier between the Jews and the Samaritans being broken down. And then later in Acts 10 and 11, we're going to see the barrier with the Gentiles being broken down. And it is just powerful to see that, again, in a chapter that could have been the end of the gospel spread, we see it actually pushing forward into previously kind of uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got, the gospel is going to people who otherwise may not have heard it. And um, I love that Philip is the one going down to the city of Samaria in this chapter and doing such good work. What's going to be interesting is the Lord has other plans for Philip, even though he's been doing a lot of fruitful work in this city. uh, He's now going to call him to the middle of nowhere. Uh, So let's read here. Uh, Chase, do you have anything else through verse 25? No, go ahead, brother. You're good. All right. So let's read the last bit of Acts 8 here. Um, 
in Acts chapter 8, we're picking up in verse 26. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns, uh, to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Okay, so an angel of the Lord comes to Philip, says, get up, go to this desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Philip says, yes, sir, as I think anybody who is spoken to by the angel of the Lord would say. And so he gets up and goes, and the text tells us in verse 27, that there is an Ethiopian man um, who was a eunuch. And in fact, he was a court official of Candace. Uh, Stephen, does your say something different there? Yeah, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So it seems like he's right. the, the treasurer of this. Um, and it is interesting here. I mean, serving in the court, something that would have been pretty common in those days was so that you wouldn't mess around with the the women of the court, uh, this person's ability to reproduce would have been cut off. And so that's the idea of being a eunuch. And he's going to be referred to in the rest of the text as this eunuch. And so it's fascinating to think about this because this man has come, I think the trip is somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 miles from Ethiopia to worship in Jerusalem. And it does say in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 1, that someone in the eunuch's condition could not go into the assembly of the Lord. Right. And so his ability to participate in the worship would have been limited. And yet this man is making a tremendously long journey in his chariot just to be in Jerusalem to worship God. And that's yeah, some, praise some like some 2,500 miles uh, that, that he's traveled to try and get to Jerusalem to worship. 
uh, for likelihood is to just to be turned away and told that he can't even go into the temple. But um, somehow while he was in Jerusalem or maybe somewhere along the way, he got a scroll of Isaiah or at least a partial scroll. I don't know, but he's sitting there reading it. And as he's sitting there, the spirit is telling Philip, go up and join this chariot. And so Philip, this is the way Chase imagines it at least is I see him kind of like jogging alongside the chariot. Right. And he, he hears Isaiah, the prophet being read. And he like kind of says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch will almost exclusively talk in questions. It's very interesting as you go through the text because he'll turn around and say, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. Okay, we're already seeing the type of humility and sincerity that somebody needs in order to learn about Jesus. If you're willing to listen and if you're willing to just humbly submit to the teaching of Jesus, you're going to take a lot away from it. And so he invites Philip up, and the passage is actually from Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, this is a chapter Stephen and I referenced a good bit at the end of our Mark podcast, at the end of season one. Um, that's the chapter written 700 years before Jesus even came that describes his crucifixion and his death to a T. And um, particularly, he quotes from the section that says, he was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before cheer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? You know, if you've never heard of Jesus, you're naturally going to be a little bit curious as to who this is talking about. Uh, you know, for us, 21st century now, Knowing the story of Jesus and growing up, many of us at least knowing the, the bare bolts of, of what happened in Jesus, you could read Isaiah 53 and almost immediately be like, oh, that's, that's talking about Jesus. But for somebody who maybe hasn't heard about Jesus at all, that would be a confusing passage to stumble across, wouldn't it, Stephen? Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting because it, this is one of the passages in Isaiah that talks about, it, it never says like, this is the Messiah or this is Jesus it describes him as the servant of the Lord uh, back in the end of Isaiah 52 actually is when the passage begins. But the, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah is like several different people. So I can understand why the eunuch is having this question. Is, is Isaiah talking yeah. about himself? Is he talking about somebody else? I love verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And you can take anywhere in scripture and begin there and preach Jesus to somebody because Jesus is all throughout scripture. And again, the new Testament scriptures don't really exist yet at this point. And he just has the scroll of Isaiah with him. I don't know if he had other scrolls as well, but he has Isaiah and that's where Philip begins and says, let me tell you about who Isaiah is talking about. And you got, you got to think this is just God's providence that this, you know, Ethiopian treasurer is reading from Isaiah 53. It's like, there's no better place he could be reading <laughs> from uh, for him to preach Jesus. And so he, he tells them the good news about Jesus. And it's kind of fascinating if you ever do this sometime to like start in Isaiah 53 or the end of 52 and just kind of read through the last half of Isaiah and think about what that sermon could have been like. 
there's one passage in particular that jumps out. Uh, I've heard this uh, pointed out before that as the eunuch is reading, they might have gotten to Isaiah 56, just a couple chapters later. And there's a passage here about foreigners and eunuchs who've joined themselves to the Lord. And it says in Isaiah 56, verse three, let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You know, the eunuch may have been uh, discouraged or sad about the fact that, well, he can't have a family. He can't have, you know, uh, a name in the sense of like descendants who carry on his legacy. But God was saying to foreigners and people who could not uh, have a uh, descendants, like, I will give you something so much better than that um, in Christ. And so this is a beautiful thing. It's kind of an interesting uh, side note of what may have been included in uh, Philip's preaching Jesus to him. But what's interesting to me, or go ahead, Chase. I mean, it's uh, simply, it's fulfilled in Jesus. Even Isaiah 56 is fulfilled in Jesus. The fact that he can approach God like this now is, is because of Jesus. That's right. And whatever it was that he said, we don't have the sermon recorded for us. What is the next thing out of the eunuch's mouth? I actually love the, the NIV's translation of this in verse 36. And it'll say, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? You know, that's, that's his very next words. And I think it's an obvious implication. It's not a jump at all. Whatever Philip said about the good news of Jesus, he said something about baptism at some point in that lesson that he gave him. Because it's not Philip who said, okay, stop the chariot. It's time to go baptize you. No, the, the, the eunuch said, look, here is water. What stands in my way of being baptized? So it was clear and evident that this was urgent and baptism had its, uh, an appropriate role in the eunuchs being saved. That's right. Because again, it would have been like, this was not exactly a convenient thing. They're on a desert road. <laughs> Thankfully, they come across some, some water and uh, that triggers the eunuch's question. And so they stop the chariot and they both get out and they go down in the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. Again, just as a side note, we see baptism as immersion here. Um, if he had some water in the chariot with him, he could have easily done a sprinkling. But baptism is immersion in water and both Philip and the eunuch go down into the water. And baptism is urgent. They don't wait till he gets back to Ethiopia. Baptism is something that they, they stop the chariot in the middle of the desert road and make this happen because he does not want to wait one more minute before he's in a right relationship with the Lord. And again, this man already had a lot of faith. He was already doing a lot to serve God, but baptism was still urgent for this man full of faith as he was, he needed baptism. Mm -hmm. And so they come up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. I, I don't know if Philip wanted that to happen or not, but this is the moment. It's like, okay, You've done what I brought you here to do. You have taught the gospel to this Ethiopian treasurer, and now you're done. And so, like, I don't think we see all this almost like, I don't know if it's like teleportation or what, but like the spirit of the Lord just like catches him up and takes him away to uh, Azotus. 
And the eunuch is like, had to be like, whoa, that was weird. This dude runs up out of nowhere to my chariot and now he's gone. But he goes on his way rejoicing. And I love how, how joy is a theme in this chapter. Back in uh, verse 8, when Philip first came to Samaria, there was much joy in that city. And now on this desert road, on the way back to Africa, there is joy from this treasurer on his way back uh, because he has been saved. It's cool that these chapters are back to back. A very somber and sad story in chapter 7 to this story in chapter 8 of a man, the Ethiopian eunuch obeying the gospel. And this chapter also showcases super, super well that if somebody is sincere and somebody wants to learn about Jesus, God will provide a way. Um, I don't always know how God does that. Um, I've certainly never been snatched up by the spirit like this. And I don't, I honestly don't think I ever will be. I don't think, uh, I don't think the Lord works that way now, but I do think that this is uh, a great example of God making a way for people to learn about Jesus. And um, I certainly think that that is still true today, that the Lord will always provide a way for those who are faithful to him um, and those who uh, are fearing him, he'll provide a way for them to learn. And that is comforting to me. That's right. And I love that Philip, man, I mean, he doesn't skip a beat, uh, despite not knowing how he ended up at Azotus. Uh, he just keeps on preaching. <laughs> he uh, preaches the gospel through all the little towns there until he comes up to Caesarea. And uh, we don't know a lot of the rest of Philip's story. The next time we see him is at Acts 21 and verse 8. We know he's married. He's got four daughters uh, who are prophetesses. And um, we don't see a lot about him, but he's, uh, he's called Philip the Evangelist there. So we know that he's still preaching the gospel yep. wherever we find him. So this guy who started out as one of the seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, um, in Acts chapter 6, serving the widows, uh, has just continued to do good everywhere that we've seen him. It's a great example, very encouraging for us. Yep. Amen. Well, next episode, we're going to learn a little bit more about Saul. Um, he was, of course, the one that was in hearty agreement with having Stephen put to death. And we'll read more about not only him persecuting the church, but by the end of the story, we're going to read a little bit about him being persecuted himself. So uh, that will be our next podcast, Lord willing. That's right. Thank you so much for listening to the episode today. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, do please subscribe, uh, rate, review. Um, if you're interested in online Bible studies, uh, we'd love to hear from you. 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians.gmail.com. Or for more information, check us out on the web at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.